You're listening to The Mix Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. Our robot's bright orange in a field of green or brown. Red kite's like, woo, what's that? You know, they're showing a real interest. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with dogs from the from the ramblers? How do you deal with curious badgers or foxes? And this sort of stuff is really is quite key because, you know, an angry badger can do quite a lot of damage to a small robot. Hello, I'm Marek Pawlowski, founder of MEX, and that was Ben Scott Robinson, co-founder of the Small Robot Company, and my guest on the show today. And one of the things... I've always loved about user-centered design is the sheer breadth of industries and people and scenarios it gives you the chance to explore. But I've got to say, uh, dealing with angry badgers, as Ben was talking about, is one that I'd never thought I'd have the chance to chat to someone about on the MEX podcast. But hey, uh, life is full of surprises. I mean, it's funny because I think Ben himself is kind of living proof of that ability to apply the toolkit of user-centered design to a whole bunch of different problems. And he trained to be a yacht designer, but then he found himself working on some of that first wave of of functional web services in the late 90s. He went on to work with the likes of Hutchison 3G, when it was launching its first mobile experiences with the arrival of high-speed 3G mobile data networks. Uh, He founded an agency of his own, a design agency of his own. Uh, He led user experience for the Ordnance Survey, which is the the big national mapping agency in the UK. Uh, He was even the winner of the first ever MEX Innovator of the Year Award uh, for a, a haptic handset concept that he designed for partially sighted users. Uh, but most recently, you know, he's been really focused on small robot company, this startup that he co-founded. Uh, and that's mainly what we spend our time talking about in this episode of the podcast. Now, I should mention a disclaimer at this point. Uh, I participated in the first round of funding for small robot, uh, and therefore I do hold some shares in the company. Uh, ben also talks about their crowdfunding campaign during our chat. So, As with any investment, you should not consider this to be any form of independent investment advice, uh, but rather what it is, a general discussion of Ben's startup in the context of his overall career. Uh, The episode itself is just another standard edition of the MEX podcast. Uh, Small Robot Company has not given any sponsorship or commercial consideration uh, and has not had any prior editorial control. You know, they'll be hearing this for the first time at exactly the same time as you and all of the the other listeners. Uh, Just thought I'd mention all of that in the interests of transparency. Uh, And of course, it, it was wonderful to have a chance to talk with Ben. Like with a lot of the guests that I've had on the show, he's someone I've known for quite a while. But what I'm finding with these podcasts is that there's always something more that you can learn about someone when you have that opportunity to sit down and have a proper chat for an hour or so. And in this case, we get quite deep into how Ben found himself kind of thrust into this world of human-robotic interactions, and particularly farming, which is the the first industry that the small robot company is is really focused on. And we talk about some of the user-centered design challenges he's been encountering in this mission to provide 
small autonomous um, all-terrain machines which can map and can weed and eventually plant crops with absolute precision uh, and I actually went down recently to visit the small robot company HQ near Salisbury, a you know, very rural and agricultural part of the UK, and got to meet some of the farmers that they're working with and learn about some of these working and lifestyle factors which might affect the user experience and how they interact with these small robots, uh, which are yeah, a very different experience, obviously, to the tractors and the large-scale machinery that, that farmers are used to. Now, it was a great chat when I really enjoyed it. We managed to get onto one of my favorite topics towards the end of boat design. And uh, Ben even has a recommendation for his Connoisseur's Ocean Cruiser of choice. So I'll be back right at the end with a little festive user story for you. But for now, here's my chat with Ben Scott Robinson, co-founder of The Small Robot Company. jump straight into the robot stuff because i know this is this is where you are currently yeah. and i was wondering about this and thinking you know knowing what you know now having spent this period working quite intensively on the small robot company if you were going back and retraining as a designer is there anything that you really hope that you would have been taught at university to prepare you for designing a good robot experience good question i think that I don't think anybody really knows what designing a good robot experience is at the moment. I think the really interesting stuff that people are discovering and finding out is you are designing at a level which is far more personal and far more with far greater opportunity for uh, annoying people or potentially you know, risking your entire industry through the experience that you're doing than you do if you're on a screen. Because the association that people have with a screen is fairly sort of dissociative. You know, they, they understand that it's a, a means to an end. It's, a, it's a, a journey or an interface they're going through to be able to achieve a task. Whereas when people see a robot, they they ascribe all these sort of emotions and sort of sense of anthropomorphism to it. And therefore, the reaction and relationship they have with it is, is, can be quite uh, illogical and quite emotional. And you know, there was a, a, a brilliant piece of work that was done um, a few years ago, which was actually around social robotics rather than, rather than the sort of real-world robotic stuff that we were looking at, which started to unpack all the different areas of uh, engagement and the constructs that were that were tied up in the relationship with robots and then how a, uh, a human reaction to a robot was was this sort of complicated structure of these constructs um, so for example the idea about something being adaptable you know, a robot being adaptable. Now, a simple demonstration of that, if you're talking about real-world robots, is when you're walking down the street, you come across a robot, and it bumps into your leg and refuses to get out of your way because it has a an, a very rigid view of its environment, and you just have to live with that. So you have to get out of its way, ultimately. You're, you know, and then you have a robot which is the capacity to be able to adapt to its environment and understand that you are moving through it, and so it needs to react to you, not just in terms of not hitting you, but maybe understanding the path that you are 
following and stepping out of that path, or even to the extent of acknowledging your presence. You know, and the difference between a robot that bumps against your leg and, you know, that makes you want to kick it uh, and a robot that steps out of your way uh, and is a little sort of chirp noise as you wander past is vast. You know, you, you suddenly ascribe all these levels of intelligence to it. And I don't think that anybody outside of PhD level stuff, you know, outside of some really clever stuff that's being done at Harriet Watt or maybe Bristol or places like that, that, that there isn't really a um uh there doesn't seem to be anyway uh, anywhere that's really trying to ascribe this um complex behavior understanding uh in experience design it's interesting that isn't it? i mean do you think that's something which has the potential to end up holding back the field because i mean clearly there are courses out there and you say phds who are working specifically on robotics but if you think about the the scale of opportunity which has been identified for this area and then the the number of experienced designers that might be required to actually turn that opportunity into to reality if it's not being taught specifically then it, it seems to me that either you've got to be able to sort of draw people in from some tangentially related areas where they can use those learnings and apply them to this new field to, to accelerate it or there's going to be this kind of latency of, of, of not having enough talent out there to be able to, to realize it i mean uh, in the, the process of creating something like a small robot company have you come up against that as a bottleneck have you been able to find that the sort of talent that you need to, to be able to realize the vision so answering your last bit first so we were really lucky that we were approached by a phd student called alexandra cole who is um doing a lot of work at the moment. So he's just started a PhD in Harriet Watt. Well, and there's this cluster of university activity around robotics that's going on um, around Edinburgh, which is incredibly exciting. He came to us and said, look, this, this is amazingly exciting. What are you doing around this? And he and I worked together. I mean, to be fair, he did the majority of the work uh, on really structuring and formulating what eventually became our human robotic interaction program but ultimately you know he he made that you know he, he made that by coming to us and and um establishing it but for us the trigger of going yes i need or for me yes i need to get you on board and to work on this was what happened to the drone companies around the uh, last year with with Gatwick and with those two drones or the, the two days where the drones were flying over Gatwick and the panic that happened off the back of that and the knee-jerk reaction in terms of legislation that happened that, that I could see did a really good job of of kiboshing an industry or certainly massively limiting industry in the UK so I think that it's that the opportunity there is massive but but you know Marek you and I've been around the block a long enough to know that the opportunities at a technical level that happen around, you know, man's interaction with machines or whatever level, whether computers or robots or whatever, are always ahead of the experience level. You know, going back to sort of first principles around, you know, stuff that happens on your computer, um, all the way through to web stuff, through to mobile, where we first met. And, you know, and it took a long time for for people to really get under the skin of what was special about the experience of mobile and, and how you take all those amazing contexts and make them work for you. And I think that this is this is the same. You have some really, really clever engineers um, you have some really clever people who are looking at the mechanics, who are looking at the 
code who are looking at the um, the capability for a vehicle to be autonomous and know its environment to be able to react to it. But none of them are thinking how that then translates into how the people in that environment react to the robot, and which is why it's such an exciting space to be in. Yeah, I mean, where do you start? Do, do the old principles apply that I guess you and I would be very familiar with from, say, the, the world of mobile, where you're starting with the basics of you know who are the users, how are we going to understand, them, how are we going to iterate to get closer to, to those behaviours? Are you finding that you can apply that same sort of set of, of first principles to, to, to get to that level of understanding, or are you having to adapt the methods? I mean, I suppose the first question really must come down to who actually are your users here? Are we talking about the people who might encounter these robots on the off chance? Are we talking about the people who are sort of tasked with controlling them or they're doing the job for? It strikes me there's a level of complexity there in itself. Yeah, I mean, you, you've, you've absolutely nailed it. So for us, the really, I suppose, the first moment of realization when we started to look into this was, was that this is not just robots farming, that we actually represent a much broader and more societally interesting area which is around real world robotics which have two sort of two main features the first feature is these are the robots that you will come across every day these are not the social robots that might look after your grandmother when she has alzheimer's or you know those rather um clunky sort of in-store experiences of a um, a, a robot greeting you with a screen in its chest or something like this. But these are the robots that will be tootling around doing jobs in the street or stacking shelves in the supermarket or, you know, doing work in fields as, as, as ours will be. And so these are robots that, that people will see first. These are, this is going to be people's first experience of autonomy. The second thing is that the people who will be mainly interacting with the robots are not the people who are their users in inverted commas as you were just saying it's it's a it's a you know that's a completely valid point the and the people who have the most to gain from a positive experience are actually the, the are ancillary to the the running of the service that that robot is part of so when we started to work on this there was um we we had to sort of establish a much broader area of constructs around how we are engaging with the robots. And we had to break it into sort of three specific areas to allow us to define it clearly and try and establish the sort of the rules that we could begin to start working on how this is going to work. So I think that, yes, there's a lot of principles that are the same. So my one of my favorite sort of design um, practices is around sort of scenario-based uh, work. So particularly, and it's particularly effective in stuff like this, or particularly effective at system levels, you know, when you when you throw everything into a scenario and you create the day and the lives and you can work through those sort of key interaction points and then you can look to extrapolate from there to be able to find, you know, where the commonalities are and stuff like that. So, and so that, what might a typical scenario be for one of the robots that you're working on at the moment? You know, what are some of the ones that you've been testing out so the so the day in the life stuff we've worked through uh, for the farming robots was around there you know a robot lives on a farm uh, it is it has its kennel for us that, that it goes back to and it recharges and changes the battery and stuff like that the the farm has multiple environments within itself so the farm yard 
spot is a place where you will have um, animals potentially, where you will have vehicles, where you will have vehicles that are not owned by the farmer. So there are you know people coming into it. You will have people like who are delivering stuff, or they might be you know workers on the farm that day, or they might be friends of the children of the farmers or whatever it is who don't experience farmers on a regular basis. So there you have a really chaotic uh, and complex environment. Then when the robot has left that environment and is traveling to the place where it needs to go, because, you know, we always think of a field being next to a farm. But the reality is with most farms is that, you know, the fields are quite a trek away. And sometimes that trek will be on public highways. Uh, now, we are in no way trying to get into the, you know, you know the, the driving on the roads thing. You know, for us, we are limiting ourselves with our customers to making sure that we're only trying to cross roads rather than go along them. Uh, and we are working off um, off-road as much as possible. But you still have to deal with vehicles and understand how vehicles, you know, sort of work on the street. Then when you get into a field or you're traveling between fields, you then have the people who use those fields who aren't the farmers. And any farmer will tell you, although there are specific rights of way that, for example, ramblers or hikers or uh, horse riders or stuff are supposed to take, the reality is, you know, a field is essentially a public environment. And it's very difficult to stop it from being a public environment. So you will come across these, you know, come across people in various different situations that you, you have to interact with. And the really interesting thing there is that they tend to be the opposite of your typical tech, tech savvy, you know, sort of first adopter. And then the final thing uh, is around non-human interact. So we, for example, when we were testing our small monitoring robot, um, we had quite a lot of problems with red kites, which are great big bloody birds who, um, you know, were easily double the size of our of our robot our robot's bright orange in a field of green or brown red kites like Whoa, what's that you know they're showing a real interest how do you deal with that how do you deal with dogs from the from the ramblers how do you deal with curious badgers or foxes and this sort of stuff is really is quite key because you know an angry badger can do quite a lot of damage to a small robot uh, and uh, uh, certainly a red kite is more than capable of flipping it over so you know, See, you, I, you I guess this is what makes it such a fascinating area I mean the the number of users experience meetings in which the phrase an angry badger gets to yeah. be used you know and, and for it to be valid i imagine are probably still uh, you know really quite a you're in the minority there uh, exactly um and then oh there is one other case actually which is something the very first thing we're asked about when we started talking about this to farmers is what happens when somebody nicks it and that was you know it's it's a huge deal the the amount of stuff that goes missing in farms is astonishing people rock up to a remote shed which has all the spraying tin or whatever and you know they bust open the, the locks they don't care about the cameras because they know they're three miles away from the house and police take 20 minutes to get there they roll the stuff onto the back of the low loader and they bugger off and you know this is a real this is a real issue so so having our robots which in principle you know on the surface look extremely valuable you know how do you deal with malicious interact uh, and that also plays for you know the uh, our partners within our human robotic interaction project which is you know how do you deal with people who want to kick a delivery robot on the street who or who really want to get at that tin of beans and the shelf that a, a shelf stacking robot is, is is trying to put other tins of beans on you know how do you how do you deal with people who are genuinely quite grumpy about you being in some shape or form so i mean it, it strikes me that there are a really diverse and complex range of, of users and challenges here but if we try to unpack that a bit i mean do you 
have to resign yourself to that from the outset and say, well, we're never going to be able to develop a unique set of behaviors, which is the, this is how we respond to badgers. This is how we respond to red kites. This is how we respond to thieves. And simply say there are too many of these scenarios to be able to have a set of specifics relevant to each of those things. Does it come down to having to develop sort of a more generic set of of principles and behaviors that mean that that robot will be a good actor in as many of those scenarios as possible, given that it's going to be hard to predict how the user will behave in each of those different situations? Or, or can you can you start to, to develop new ways where you can deal with all of that complexity and all of those different possible permutations? So I think what we wanted to do was was the very starting point, and which is you know, we, we have got to stage one, I think, in this process. And the, the very starting point was really to understand, well, what are we trying to achieve here? We are not, arguably, we're not in a situation where a small robot company is just designing for the um, farming robots that it is developing. It needs to be more consortia-led. It needs to be a bit broader. And so we need to have goals which are really trying to establish some sort of blueprint for the industry. And if you take a sort of subset of robotics as being this real world robotics thing I was talking about, then we need to, you know, establish this sort of uh, a set of very base level guidelines to start with before you can get into applying those guidelines into sort of specific scenarios and how that works. And then from that guidelines, if there's a set of rules that we can look at, you know, are there particular behaviors that happen across the board? Um, And what and is there a way that we can unify those so that when somebody comes across a small robot company robot in a field, that it works in a way that is predictable and understood from the last time that person had an experience with a Starship delivery robot on the streets of Greenwich um, so that there's something familiar there? In the same way that, you know, over time and through much sort of trial and error, those sort of standard rules of interaction and behavior have developed around online and mobile and and stuff like that. So is there much happening in that area already? I mean, is there an industry code of conduct emerging about how robots should behave across all of those categories? Not not like this, no. So the, the work that's been done to date has primarily been by the standard industrial bodies that are putting together health and safety rules on one side. So, and that is coming out of the sort of robot robots, robot arms in the factory model. And in fact, a lot of the um, robotics companies that we approached are very engineering focused. You know, their initial point was, well, why do we need to get involved in this? We're making sure that we've got the stop button and we've got the, you know, the, the sort of the, the, the boundary rules so that if you get too close to something, it stops and all that sort of stuff. And it's like, well, that's, you know, that is that is the base level. That's the absolute base level of what needs to happen. So nobody's really looking at that. There's, however, there is some lovely work that was done from a guidance perspective by the EU um, around uh, ethical AI. And it's a really, really good read. I, I can't recommend it enough. It's, it sounds like the dullest thing ever. It's the EU Ethics Guidelines for Trustworthy AI. But it's clearly been written by somebody, well, it's, it's 400 people or something have, have, have contributed to it. But whoever pulled it together has got a real, you know, a real eye for being able to, to understand the, the, the deeper sort of emotive issues that are going on here. And also with an eye to quite a lot of literature, um, if I'm honest. Uh, and so that's, you know, it's, it's come out pretty well. But no, in terms of the specifics around human robotic interaction and, and how they work, I'm, again, I'm taking just focusing on the real world stuff here, how it works in the real world, um, there doesn't appear to be anything, which is why, you know, we're talking, you know, our, our initial group of, of companies has now expanded to include Starship, who have got 
something like 300,000 hours worth of um, uh, interaction data that they have collected and they they look wanting to progress and do some cool stuff with um, so that they can move this forward. And people like Bossa Nova, the in-store um, robots that are already in-store in um, uh, Walmart in the States, and they're, they're working in sort of hundreds of, of shops. But, you know, they're also very keen to try and sort of move past the um, sort of the base level um, stopping if something comes around and trying to establish a, um, uh, some unified understanding of of behaviours and the communication of those behaviours. Do you think that the the robots themselves, you know, if we project f- maybe five years, ten years down the line, will be thought of as having their own user-centered design capabilities? You know, will robots become user-centered designers in as much as they will adapt their behavior over time based on the preferences that they observe among the that the humans, the animals potentially that they're interacting with? Or is that a, a step of anthropomorphism too far? I think it's very interesting. I think that um, you we, we run the risk, I suppose, of having things like that. Is it Tay, the, the um, AI that um, was released into the uh, world. Yes, the, the famously foul-mouthed yeah. AI from Microsoft. Yeah, yeah exactly. The, we run the risk of, you know, actually when you introduce robots to people, it's the, the robots that walk away disappointed and disillusioned. But uh, but I think there's certainly, there's certainly learning to be done there and learning around behaviours. But I suppose from my perspective, there, there also needs to be something that is sort of universal that allows for people moving from context to context to be able to have a comfort in what happens when they come near a robot and that so if you have like if you have our robots in a field and they can learn it might be what they learn to do is you know if they're in a field in in Shropshire they might learn how to interact with people in fields in Shropshire but as soon as they come across somebody who's gone and come out for a ramble from Manchester who's used to seeing robots that deliver on the street in Manchester who've developed their own behaviors around that then you know it's something that's completely different and and then you run that risk of, of confusion and and uh, and fear which is exactly the opposite and I think that sort of ethical and etiquette level of stuff is what is, is one of the things we need to make as universal as possible yeah I mean there's a, a huge diversity of situations there I guess the uh, did you hear the story I think it was from Starship the the delivery robot company you're talking about about how they handle hostage situations well, where the robot is held hostage I, exactly yeah um, I, I don't I, I think it was Starship that was talking about this I'm sure I saw someone there giving a, a briefing or a conference talk about this and the the scenario that they were coming across was basically when kids took these robots hostage and they were trying out different permutations of script to go through because they have the the audio link built into their robot so that they can sort of in in real time have a conversation with whoever's there Uh, and they were trying to work out what is the most effective script that they could go through to get the hostage released as soon as possible. Yeah, I I haven't heard around that particular thing, but that's exactly the sort of stuff that we're looking at. I mean, that's, you know, it is it is definitely, so there are two things there, I suppose, that that you you could pull out from that. One is that what is, you know, what is the reaction cycle what is the you know the, the sort of the experience around that negative engagement and you know whether it's truly um 
uh, malicious or whether it's a prank, then there's definitely something to be resolved there. And I know, so um, uh, we're pretty closely tied to Starship. They, they, um, uh, there's a lot of similarities in, in what we're trying to achieve, but we're in different markets. So we're, you know, it's, it's a great sort of partnership for us to sort of work together. So uh, they are rolling out at the moment in, I think it's 100 campuses across the US. And, you know, the opportunity for, for that sort of, jolly japes shall we say to happen with um drunken students in in on these campuses is it's got to be vast but then it also comes back to that fact of where the line is between the robot and how the behavior of the robot is is um automated and where the communication between the interactor and the user happens so at what point can the the, the interactor say to the robot, look, I just need to talk to your controller or the controller to be able to understand when the robot's in a bit of a difficult situation. And as you say, pick up, have that script of going, uh, can you let this robot go now, please? You know, yeah, so. I, I think in, in that scenario, as I recall, they found the one which generally got them to hostage release quickest was actually what they sort of termed the playful one. They sort of had to enter into it as a bit of a game, particularly because this was kids that they were dealing with, and treat it as sort of a faux hostage situation and to go through that and have a bit of fun with it. And that was much more likely to result in a positive outcome than going through the, you know, do your parents know about this? We're going to call the police, that sort of thing. It, <laughs> yeah. it was much more effective to basically treat it as a game, which I guess tells us something about the the possibilities there for sort of playful engagement yeah. and being able to make these things a little bit more um, more human feeling. Yeah, exactly. And also, you know, nobody likes being threatened. You know, if, certainly if they're entering into it in a sort of spirit of lightheartedness, it's for somebody to turn around to be, you know, for, for a thing to turn around to be really grumpy and officious and wobbly about just puts everyone's back up. I mean, did you did you imagine that you were going to end up designing robots? Like when you think back to, I mean, well, to start with, was there a first moment when you felt like designing things was going to be what you wanted to do? And was that specifically tied to the goal of I'm going to end up designing robots, or was it broader than that? Um, well, the first thing I wanted to design um, was was yachts. Um, I, when I was about seven, I think, after I got past the James Bond phase, I wanted to be a spy. I thought, no, I want to want to design boats, and. And that was that was my driver all the way through school. I did, you know, I did all my GCSEs and all my A levels focused on the idea that I was going to to design design boats. And and it was, you know, it was a huge sense of sort of disillusionment and loss, I suppose, when I realised when I when I went to university and and um, actually sort of was did the course that it wasn't what I hoped it would be. It wasn't it wasn't design. It wasn't. I suppose it wasn't that sort of pure left brain, right brain thing that, that I'd sort of uh, unconsciously seen in yacht design around that combination of, you know, form and function and, and stuff. It was far more, it was far more engineering, it was far more maths, it was far more, you know, sort of looking at the outcomes rather than looking at the aesthetics. And, and um, so, so that I think had a, a very long and, and ultimately tragic love affair with the idea of, of, of designing hardware that way so when you say left brain right brain that that's kind of interesting like you mean there that that combination of uh, i guess the objective usability of the thing and the fact that it ends up with a, a beautiful creatively led object as well is is, is that the, the how, how you'd interpret yeah, that yeah precisely um i think that you know when when you look at so i think for, for me you know, yachts is still the perfect sort of example of it is that you have, you know, you have a caravan 
Um, you have a, um, an object that is designed to move fast through the water uh, and you have an object that is designed to appeal to the eye. Uh, and all those things are absolutely vital in allowing the company who's making that object to sell it. Um, if you have a, a beautiful boat that will only sleep one person and uh, doesn't allow that person to have the fantasy of, of sailing that boat on a Caribbean island or uh, anchoring in a, in a small, beautiful um, uh, uh, area off the North Norfolk coast, Marek, uh, then, uh, then they won't sell the boat. And so it needs to fulfill all these things, which means it needs to have that, you know, the, the, the logical, mechanical, mathematic elements working as well as the design element. And I suppose what, what made me fall out of love with it was that at my, and on the university course I was doing, the aesthetic and the understanding of the people um, and what they liked and their behaviors and all the rest of it was completely removed. So in many ways it was a, you know, it was a, a, an analog for the view of the various different sort of tech industries that I've encountered all the way through my career and as you have as well, you know, the, you, know you, you see the, the potential for these amazing experiences and in our heads they're experiences but they always start off with the technical capability and that technical capability needs to be forcibly matched up to the needs of a person um, before they become something that can be adopted by the mass. So it's starting to make a bit more sense now why robots is something that you've, you've ended up with now that I understand a bit more about that, that inspiration. Because that's, as you say, a lot of those elements there are things which are directly analogous to the challenges that you're now dealing with in the world of, of robot interactions. Uh, but have there been other moments in your career where you've felt like you've ended up in that sweet spot of being able to sort of balance that, that creative and, and aesthetic goal with the, the, the functional, the usability goal as well? So I think the, the first, you know, my first encounter with the internet was um, after having dropped out of university and I was on the dole for a couple of years, um, the government very kindly offered me a, a six week back to work course doing a DIY build your own website. And um, this was in 1996. It was just, it, it, you know, it was it was one of a series of, of, of sort of like light bulb Damascene moments I've had, I suppose. But, you know, going on this thing and sort of saying, well, I have to do it, otherwise I don't get my dole. And then after about two days of doing this course, it was like, right, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. The, the whole thing around, you know, it was the first opportunity where a person could interact with their entertainment or information or function, you know, in a truly sort of real-time way. And it just blew my head off, you know, the whole thing, the whole potential was, was massive. Um, and then a few years later, I think, so in 19... 19- Nine, I've been working for a company doing these very beautiful sort of interact, essentially interactive adverts, you know, for for people like Cartoon Network and VW and all the rest of it, and they were they were really beautiful, and they there was a you know they were really there was a lot to them, but they didn't have that function, they didn't have that right brain element, and seeing some of the very first sort of online banks, so the very first sort of attempt, I think it was Nat West did, which was done by Razorfish in the UK, was just it was incredible, it was an incredible mind blowing experience and I'm working on Commonwealth Bank at the time as well which was did things like allow you to understand you know to, uh, uh, it sounds crazy now but you know an, a, a, on the front page a cost calculator for their mortgage you know just to be able that interaction where it sort of tied into util, um, utility and function and stuff that sort of really blew my head off and really
really took me down the route of you know user experience got me into the user experience and how did that lead to to mobile because i guess by the time you and i met which probably would have been into the 2000s i would guess you know you seem to be quite specifically focused around mobile experiences what, what led you into that specifically i was invited along to a event called future future design for london um there was some uh by by somebody who who i rated and still do rate as as one of the most sort of influential um uh, experienced designers in the uk and possibly the world a guy called matt jones and there were some people talking there about the potential of 3g and they came up with these sort of hardware software combination concepts and there was a chap there the late great um damon uh, clark i don't know if you you ever met damon he was working at uh, Nortel at the time and was talking about, you know, having a pen that was 3G connected so you could write a message to somebody just on the table and it would appear as a text message in somebody's phone or, you know, the video calling stuff. or the, And it was all really, you know, really context specific, but really beautifully conceived. And it just, you know, sort of thought, well, this is incredible, you know, the potential here. And it, I suppose it, it led to a, a real eye opener in terms of how user centered design could go wrong and wrong. Right. Um, the work that they were doing, uh, well, all the people who were working on that ended up working for um, Hutchison Telecom, um, which was at the time was the first 3G company in the world and was really the pioneer in trying to explore what happens with mobile, you know, on a color screen phone, you know, very basic stuff with a, um, uh, a four-way rocker um, that has real-time, always-on internet connection, you know, and then eventually touchscreen. And it was just miles ahead of it you know the miles ahead of what anything else was doing and uh, it was super exciting and so i ended up badgering damon a couple of other people etc and eventually got in touch and, and started working with this team who are looking at things like you know what happens when you have uh, a music player on your phone where you can just download music or what happens when you have a shop you can go to where you can buy applications that do all sorts of stuff or what happens when you have um, a map that shows you how you can walk down a road on your phone to be able to get to where you're trying to get to or you know tells you when the music is uh, sorry tells you when the train is going to arrive in real time you know all this sort of stuff which is which was miles ahead of its time and um, working all these concepts and just understanding that each one of those had those had that little trigger for just different people and then what happened when you sort of tried to try to um, uh, bring that up to a high level well what are people going to use 3g for um, the answer according to the senior management was well they're going to use it for video calls and they're going to use it for watching um, Premier League football and it was a huge mistake for the company, you know, massively expensive mistake, because the reality was people are going to use it for a thousand different things and everybody will find their own use. And then what ended up happening was that well, people use it for Facebook. And, you know, the real winner, as I'm sure sure you remember, when, when 3G really started to hit the market was Facebook. And the, the usage of Facebook at one point was, you know, more than half of all the data used on 3G phones in the UK was just to look at Facebook. And, you know, it was a, just this astonishing, you know, usage. But people didn't even think about social networks when it first happened. They didn't exist. It wasn't a thing. But it was something that sort of rose out of this capacity for instantly contextually aware um, communication and it just invented a whole new area. It's fascinating, you know, how that all ended up playing out because I guess if you look now at whether the percentage of usage in terms of user time, in terms of data traffic is, then 
quite a few of those things around video consumption and even video calling have come to pass. It's just there was that that whole phase, as you say, where senior management completely missed that there were a bunch of other things that needed to happen that were more important to users to get the devices into their hands to actually make those other long-term things end up even being viable. Uh, and I suppose that's where the failing of, of user-centered insight seemed to occur, was that they, they just missed completely that those parts were going to be necessary. Yeah, and they, they you know, in the in the drive to come up with global answers that would work for mass markets they completely missed all the subtlety around the individual sort of what what google calls those micro moments uh, and how they play out with with smaller markets or or individuals and you know and by trying to be too prescriptive around how you implement something. You don't allow people to be able to develop their own engagement. So yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You know, now look at video now. Video calling, I, I still think, is, is 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 not the mass market thing that it was promised at the time. And it's certainly not the money spinner, obviously, because it's all online. But um, I think that the but video consumption certainly is, is astonishing uh, and the rate that it's grown over the last few years. You've, I mean, you touched there on a few of those different roles that you've had, but knowing a, a bit about your career and having stalked you on LinkedIn prior to recording this podcast, it strikes me that you have really seen every permutation user experience team that you can imagine. I mean, you've done big in-house teams within the tech industry. You've done big in-house teams outside of the tech industry. You have been at smaller agencies, bigger agencies. You've founded and, and sold your own agency, and now you're doing it in a startup startup environment. I mean, having had all of those different experiences, do you think there's one that suits you best? I think, annoyingly, the thing that, that, that I get the most pleasure out of is this trailblazing stuff. And annoyingly, because it, it is ultimately self-defeating, right? Because you just get to a point where you can't trailblaze it. You know, the, the opportunity of making those first realizations at quite a large scale um, and finding out, you know, the sort of fundamental behavioral patterns uh, when people start engaging with a new piece of technology and start to craft their own ways of dealing with it, I think is super exciting. You have those opportunities if you're working in the agencies, if you steer the agencies to work with the right type of client. Uh, I think that the, the, the downside is that they're quite often not the high paying jobs. You know, it's nearly always a situation with an agency when you're small, you start off and you can do all sorts of really cool, funky stuff because you can afford to go for clients that can't pay very well. But as the agency grows, uh, you need to take on bigger clients, which tend to be, you know, getting down to to more of the minutiae of, of sort of shaving off um, sort of perceptual millimeters, if you like, from from experiences uh, for bigger brands. And um, which is, you know, which is a pleasure in its own right, but it is not my, my main driving place. Also, I think that for me, the fundamental shift that, that's occurred, I suppose, around robotics was really started when I when I read um, No Interface by Golden Krishna. And it really made me realize something. Well, maybe I'll go come back to a conversation. It's actually a conversation that, that you and I have had often, Marek, about, you know, what is the post-touchscreen world and how there is, you know, an opportunity for interaction that is that is beyond the, the, the that sort of oblong screen. And that... But his book, you know, the way he touched on this beautiful example he had for um, 
BMW's um, car key app, which I think, you know, the idea is you press one button on your phone and unlock the car and how amazing that was. And, and then when he delved into it and he did a little user journey around it, it was actually 12 clicks that included unlocking your phone, it included uh, getting it out of your pocket, it including finding the application and going to the right screen and then pressing the button. Whereas a key is superb at doing that job. And the idea that, you know, physical objects have the capacity to make experiences far slicker and far nicer and far more um, pleasurable than a multi-purpose device that um, tries to achieve all these different experiences in one thing. So I suppose that that was really um, a, an initial trigger for me. And then then sort of hearing about what the potential was with with farming robots from from a chap on the radio when I was driving into work at you know 5:45 in the morning and and uh, this academic came on and was talking about the future of farming at you know as, as I'm sure you're a big fan of farming today on Radio Four. Uh, he was talking at the Oxford Farming Conference and his you know his view that the that big tractors, big machinery, all the rest of it was not only not good for the environment or not good for farming but it was it was a complete dead end and it was a massively destructive dead end which had huge societal impacts was was uh, was this this the final i suppose damacy moment in my life and really made me wake up to the fact that there are problems that are solved not by improving an experience around a mapping product or a shopping experience or a banking experience but actually fundamentally changing the way that we make food did you know much about farming before you heard that because i I know prior to starting Small Robots, you were head of user experience at Ordnance Survey, which for users outside the UK is the, the I guess, sort of central mapping organisation responsible for a lot of the detailed maps of, of the, uh, the the British landmass and particularly the countryside you know, used by ramblers and all sorts of, of different people. Had that brought you into contact with the, the world of farming already or were you starting from a sort of completely new base when you, you heard that uh, interview around the farming? My experience was, was- extremely limited the really so the technology that that i was introduced to or the concept of the technology i was introduced to on that call and subsequently i mean i i then stalked this guy i organized a call with him i spoke to him about the stuff they were doing and went up to see him at harper adams university in shropshire um and all that was extremely exciting but it comes back to the fact you know that the real passion of any of any sort of user experience practitioner is right well but how does this fit in somebody's life you know, and in being introduced to my business partner Sam, who's a farmer, and really getting his side of things was was massively enlightening. Uh, and then we together sort of put together this really detailed qualitative uh, research package that he then actually took out on the road uh, and went into the farms of, or the sorry, the kitchen of you know initially 50 but it's been over 150 now farmers uh, and sat down and went through this and just just getting under the skin of, of what they want and what their fears are and what their you know what the things that they they keep them up at night as well as you know the potential answers and solutions to their problems you know the really lovely qualitative sort of data stuff that the the, the wealth of information that we got back from that and then the wealth of information that I've got from just going around to speak to the farmers who have since prepaid for our service advance the ones who you know have expressed an interest in what we're doing and have invited me down to their farm and allowed me to interview them uh, you know ultimately it's been this huge two-way process and I've been properly to, to use an American expression, properly schooled on this one. Um, and But, you know, it is one of the joys of being, you know, a practitioner is that once you get into a new industry or a new market, you have to learn it and you really have to learn the nuances. And you've got to, you know, you've got to understand where the pain points are and you've got to, you know, cast, 
cast yourself out from from the um, potential um, sort of lazy assumptions that, that you initially throw into it. And, and, and that's just it's one of the joys I think, of, of getting into a new industry and getting into um, understand what's going on. What's been your most memorable moment on a farm? Because I'm guessing that you hadn't spent all that much time in the world of farmhouses and, and fields prior to that. Are there any which really stick in the mind that opened your eyes? Yeah, I think the there was there, there was a uh, one father and daughter farming team the most unlikely pairing you've ever seen i think um he was sort of a classic farmer sort of quite comes across as being quite reactionary comes across as being quite sort of old school and she was I mean, in the 60s and she's in her i don't know i hate to put an age on it but 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 her her, you know, his his daughter, blue hair, you know, nose piercing, all the rest of it. And they were, you know, you just would not have put them together, but they were joined by the love of data. And they were joined by the fact that, you know, what they were doing on their farm was driven by this sort of underlying understanding. And part of it, part of it was gut driven, but part of it was just for years and years of running what they call these 40 experiments, which is the lifetime on a farm. You know, a farmer has 40 experiments where they can, where they can do anything they want, literally. You know, they can plant stuff, they can not plant stuff. They can decide what they're going to plant. They can decide how they're going to treat that plant. They're going to decide whether or not they they spray it. They're going to decide whether they're going to be completely organic. They're going to decide whether they um, uh, sell it to wholesalers or they try and make bread out of wheat or they, you know, they can do whatever they want. And you know, they and they view it as that. You know, a large proportion of farmers don't just do the same thing every year. They end up doing something that's similar because it ends up that, you know, they they work out a way of best using the land that they've got and all the rest of it. But but it is always an experiment. And I think that that was so different from the view that I had when I first went into this, where I assumed that farmers were Luddites, where they just did the same thing every year. They just did what everybody else did. They just, you know, they followed this sort of traditional routine pattern. Um, and um, that was, you know, and it was a real schooling. And, and they still, you know, they still sort of take the mickey out of me out of it because, you know, I went there with this interview list of, you know, how do you deal with your data? What do you want to do with it? How do you want to display it? How do you want to, you know, it was quite it was actually quite a functional uh, interview that I was carrying out, and some, and I was doing, you know, some some fairly basic sort of wireframe-based sort of one-on-one -on -one testing with them. And the reality was, I walked out of there enlightened in, in, in a way that, that that you know I just didn't think possible. Yeah, that that's very interesting, and I mean something which I think I picked up on myself when I came down to visit you guys the other day at your your HQ and met some of the the farmers that have been involved with what you're doing and uh, potentially looking at the next crowdfunding campaign. And I was certainly struck by that as well, about how many of the people there really had some quite detailed and advanced thinking about how those data could be used, how these robots potentially could be used for them, and the sheer appetite for wanting to try new things. Uh, it certainly gives lie to the, the more sort of stereotypical image that we're given of, of farmers as sticking to their tried and tested methods. Yeah, precisely. And um, and I think that's the, the really exciting thing. And it's, you know, it's it's a, one of the, the biggest joys about this is that there is a confluence at the moment, which I think is a societal thing between the way we produce our food, the the way technology like 
really cutting edge technology around robotics and AI and stuff like that is is developing. And this huge requirement, this perilous requirement for us to radically readdress the way we deal with our environment. And, you know, it's like you have you have the the understanding of what needs to happen you have the basic toolkit to be able to make the change you have the willing from the customers to make it happen uh, and you have the all the drivers around economic and environmental benefit to sort of push things forward and to be at that sort of that crux that confluence moment is 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 incredibly exciting it's incredibly exciting i mean is that the motivation behind using crowdfunding as the financing method for this so we started uh, in the summer to speak to um, venture capitalists about our next raise of funding and we know that there's there's sort of you have to work in these sort of hops when you're doing sort of a funded startup and you have to sort of tick certain boxes and get to the next point and when we started talking to our uh, particularly our sort of farm investors uh, who had um, supported us in our last crowd crowdfunding round they said why why are you why are you going to why are you going to speak to those city folks and why aren't you why aren't you speaking to us and then on the the other side of that you know going out and and talking so for example showing the human robotic interaction work we were doing at uh, interact the a fantastic event in london run by nemensa um and speaking to you know you know people who are sort of deep in the user experience world there and, and them saying, but, you know, this is the sort of thing that we never get a chance to support. You know, we hear about it, but we never get a chance to be part of it. And so we sort of went back and 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 readdressed what we were looking to do and decided, okay, well, we're going to open this up again. We're going to, we're going to go back out to, to, to the people who we know would be interested and they do fall very neatly into a categories of the farmers who can see the the, the excitement of what's going on the, the the people who understand that sort of bridge between sort of technology and, and experience uh, and the people who see that need around big environmental change in, in a fairly short space of time and saying well you know this is your chance this is probably the only chance you'll get to actually be part of it uh, and actually, you know, take a stake in it and buy buy a stake. Um, and uh, so that's yeah, that's why we've opened it up again. So, what's the the next step for you guys from a, a business perspective? So we are this year we have um, launched the first part of our service, which is uh, we call our robots Tom, Dick, and Harry, um, and we provide an end to end service for for arable farmers. So, and Tom is a monitoring robot, and the key thing around Tom is that it allows us to get a per plant view of the crop. So rather than making decisions based on a field or clumps or whatever it is, we can actually understand, you know, what each plant needs and look after that plant and where each weed is and what we need to do around that and where the disease is and all that sort of stuff. We have that monitoring part of our service uh, has gone live uh, for weed detection and uh, crop monitoring this year in October. And we have one robot. We have a, a very limited amount of um, hectares that we're covering, but it's being paid for. You know, so our, our first customers have, have agreed to pay for this service. And so that's hugely exciting. So this year is is moving from the point of having one robot that we have to have two people looking after and sort of supporting and fixing to having a number of manufactured Toms out in the field 
next year where we're covering thousands of hectares rather than a couple of hundred and uh, being able to detect a lot more in terms of the weed types and all this sort of stuff. And then also, thanks to innovation funding that we've got from from UK's um, Innovate UK early stage uh, funding cycle, we have uh, also got a project where we are now testing in lab and just about to move out into the field, but we will have a working prototype for testing on our farmer's fields next um, October, a way of killing individual weeds using electricity so with no technology no chemicals at all um and that is and they are the sort of the core part of the project and then the the other part is the sort of the brains of the operation wilma who is both the the, the method by which we ingest information convert it feed it through the ais and convert that into intelligence for the robots and convert it into information for the farmers to see um so that is uh, that's something that we've, we've rolled out as part of this we are now testing that and working with our farmers to to evolve that and make that into a, a intuitive experience. So, yeah, so it's a really exciting time for us. So one last question, just going back to your uh, origins in the world of, of yacht design and yacht designing ambitions. Uh, is there an ideal boat out there for you that you think sums up that blend of aesthetics and functional usability which is, has been a recurring theme in your career is there a particular boat that you lie awake at <laughs> um, night dreaming so of? I, the, I, I do have a boat at the moment and it is very close so the boat i have my my aim is always towards classic aesthetic i suppose so my boat is um from the 1950s it is designed as an ocean racer so it's incredibly tough uh, it's one of the very first glass fiber boats so it was built to to withstand is bu- bulletproof basically but looks absolutely beautiful but in terms of the best boat in my mind out there there was um an amazing french guy called oh god i can't his name but anyway, he designed a boat called amel and amel was designed purely and specifically for sailing around the world and everything about the boat was purely focused on that so you didn't there was nothing that weighed more than 30 kilograms that you had to pick up the everything you know in terms of the way you were sailing the boat was perfectly laid out the the construction of the boat was designed to withstand tropical storms the everything about it was 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 magnificently designed and aesthetically it's it's not for me as pleasing as as the boat i have and the older boats but because it was designed in the 80s and they they still build them now actually but but um, um and they are a connoisseur knows an ml and you know somebody who's done any sort of ocean sailing or whatever will know what an ml is and it is you know it is that sort of little piece of of insider purity that that uh, i think really pleases well i'm going to try and uh, dig out a link and put it in the show notes so that people can go and have a, a look at this book because i'm kind of interested myself yeah not least because it strikes me that something like boat design i guess you're living proof of this you know with all of its attendant complications and potential users and scenarios uh, is a pretty appropriate crucible for forging some user experience expertise which you can then go on to apply to, to different industries which obviously you've you've gone on and and done yourself um, but ben look thank you for taking the time to come on the show and share all of that it's been really interesting catching up on a way you've got to with it and i wish you and the, the small robot company the best of luck thank you very much uh, Marek. that's much appreciated um now, if sorry to do a blatant plug here, Marek, I hope you don't mind, but um, if you are listening to this prior to the um, end of February 2020, then we are 
still in the process of crowdfunding. And if you are interested in getting involved, then um, please go to smallrobotcompany.com. And there is a link on the homepage there that takes you through to our CrowdClick Cube page. Um, and it would be great to have you on board. Great. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Ben. Thank you very much, Mark. Much appreciated. There we go. A rather different world of user-centered design, you know, out in the fields, trying to change an approach to farming and figure out how best to balance human and robot relations in you know, some really quite challenging conditions. Now, if you'd like to follow up on anything that Ben and I talked about, you can find those show notes that I mentioned with all of the links at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. Now, I've been getting some lovely feedback from you on the little user stories that I've been mentioning at the end of each podcast. So given that Christmas is just around the corner here in the UK, I thought we might have one today with a bit of a festive theme to it. And if you find yourself in trouble on the water in the UK, there's a bit of a special organisation which is dedicated to keeping you safe, uh, the RNLI, the Royal National Lifeboat Institution. And it's a charity. It's entirely funded by donations. It's separate from the Coast Guard and the government. And it dates back to like 1820, 1824, I think. So whether you're a swimmer uh, that's been swept out to sea or you're on a boat that's having difficulty off the coast, more likely than not, it's going to be an RNLI boat that comes out to your rescue. I mean, it's kind of an amazing thing, really. It's a charitable organisation that does so much to keep people safe out at sea. Anyway, there's an RNLI station just down the coast from where I live, and every year they hold this carol service in their boathouse around Christmas time. So we went down the other night to stand around their Christmas tree and sing some carols, donate a bit of money to the cause. Uh, and it turns out that we were not alone, far from it. This place was absolutely packed. I mean, you literally couldn't have got another person into this lifeboat station. And this also meant that they had run out of the little printed books of carols. But of course, you know, this is 2019, so smartphones came to the rescue. As each of the carols began, people would just take out their smartphones and you could see them Googling the lyrics. Uh, and then if you could uh, see that the people who were sort of jammed in around you, like standing room only in the boathouse, didn't have a songbook of their own, people would hold up their phones so that the few people around them could share the screen together and could, could read the words off the screen together with them. So the boathouse is ringing with Christmas carols. It's all lit up with fairy lights. You know, really a wonderful Christmas scene by the sea. Uh, and I feel my partner nudging me in the ribs to, to look at someone who's standing a couple of yards away in the crowd. And there's this elderly gentleman, probably in his 80s, I would guess, uh, and he was obviously one of the judicious people who'd got there early enough to get an actual paper copy of the carol book. Uh, but he's holding up his iPhone. And uh, what surprised me, I mean, it's a brand new iPhone 11 in front of the carol book. And he was using the screen and the camera as a magnifier to help him read the small text, literally like a, a digital magnifying glass. And I mean, I guess to me, it was a reminder, it was a reminder of just how pervasive these smartphone experiences have become in our lives, but also that they are indeed filtering down to, to 
people and places where they can deliver these unexpected benefits. Yeah, it's, it's easy when you work in any industry, I think, to become a bit cynical and jaded about the role that it plays in people's lives. And there have certainly been plenty of moments on this podcast in the last year when me and the guests that I've had on have ended up talking about usability problems or the way technology can distract and capture too much of our attention. But there we were with the smartphone fulfilling, I guess, what is one of its fundamental principles of being a sort of Swiss army knife, a tool belt style type of a device, combining all of these multiple functions. It was helping one person to magnify text, uh, helping a bunch of other latecomers like us to the carol service to quickly search and find the words to the songs. And these are the little kind of unexpected uses and scenarios and, and moments with users which still keep me fascinated in this whole area of user-centered experience design uh, and which I'm looking forward to hopefully talking more about in the new year. So we're going to have a little break from recording over the holidays, uh, which means the next episode of the show will probably be out around late January time. Uh, But I'm also going to be out at CES in Las Vegas in early January. Um, So if anyone listening is heading out there yourself, do drop me a line. Um, The email address is designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com. And it'd be great to see if we can find a way to catch up while you're there. Don't forget that there is also the archive now. I think nearly 70 previous shows that we've recorded for this podcast at mobileuserexperience.com. Uh, so if you're looking for something to listen to while traveling over the holidays, head on over and you can find all of those back episodes there. But for now, thanks for listening and Merry Christmas.